This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. So excited today to be joined by Hillary McBride. Dr. Hillary McBride is a registered clinical counselor in private practice in Vancouver, BC, and she recently completed her PhD in counseling psychology at UBC. She focuses on the intersection of spirituality and mental health and trauma and trauma therapies, embodiment, eating disorders, body image, sex and sexuality, and also feminist approaches to psychology. Her work has been recognized by both the American and Canadian Psychology Associations, and she was recently awarded the International Young Investigator Award for her research contributions so early in her career. You can hear her as a co-host on the Liturgist podcast and also host of the CBC podcast, Other People's Problems. And of course, find out more at her website, hillarylmcbride.com. Okay, so here's our chat with Hillary. Okay, Hillary, thank you so much for joining us and talking. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here with you guys. Thanks for having me. Nate and I have both appreciated you and your voice and your work from afar, um, but uh, super fun to actually see your face and meet you. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I really appreciate the invitation. Glad to be here with you guys. So for those that don't know Hillary. Uh, so much of your work, Hillary, at least that I've seen, has been your therapist. Mm-hmm. You're you're currently working on your PhD. Is that right? Done. Done. Done my PhD. Wow! Congratulations. Yes. Yeah. Big congrats. Thank you. Yeah. In uh, the psychology of counseling, is that right? Yeah. Okay. What some of the stuff I've most appreciated from you is your your brain and your your way of uh, <laughs> taking a lot of data. Uh, information, knowledge, um, and making that, especially knowledge around psychology, how the human brain works, mm-hmm. how we relate to other people, all of that, but then putting that in a form that is <laughs> is tangible, sensible, and that we could do something with. Right, um, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think we're going to pick your brain on a lot of that stuff today okay. around therapy, okay. psychology. But before we do, I would just love to hear some of your backstory, how you oh, got yeah. into therapy, how you yeah. came across any of this, and then where faith and religion helped spur that journey or maybe was sort of a different part of the puzzle or whatever, uh, however you make sense of, of that. Great. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Um, I I tried really hard to not be a therapist. <laughs> I I really I gave it my best go because uh, both my parents are therapists, and I I guess there's a part of me that was like, if I do that, it's going to be because I want to, not because you know it was the family trade or something like that. So um, I was actually a performance violinist and uh, did my degree in violin, uh, and that was a really really big part of my life. I think probably most of my time in undergrad, I was playing violin like five to eight hours a day, like a lot, a lot, a lot of time playing violin and classical music was like the currency of my existence. And I like some of the backstory to that is I was also really struggling with the eating disorder and my own mental illness and comorbid with my eating disorder was OCD. And I had, um, yeah, it's a lot of hallucinations and delusions, like things that just happen when your brain is undernourished for a really long time. And mm. 
decided that there was something about playing violin that was kind of keeping the eating disorder going, this like perfectionistic mentality, this way of seeing the world that was only about doing everything the exact right way. And so left left that and went and lived in a birth house in the Northern Philippines. And that was my chance to intentionally be around women's bodies in a way that I was hoping would help me tell a new story about my body. Like there's something about birth. I don't know if either of you have kids. Um, there's something about birth that is, it kind of flips the story of our bodies upside down. Uh, at least in my perspective, it did in that there was this thing that seemed totally wild and otherworldly and maybe even insurmountable. Like some, po- some people, when I was with them while they were delivering said like, I think I'm going to die. And yet this body has its, in, you know, its innate wisdom in it that helps us get through that challenge and actually birth something beautiful on the other side. And for me, the journey of being, uh, being a therapist is really similar to, I think, what midwives do. And I, at first I thought I wanted to be a midwife and then I didn't get into midwifery school. So I went back to school to study psychology and realized, oh my gosh, this is what I loved about midwifery. It was that I get to be with people who are in the midst of what feels impossible. It feels like they're going to die. And on the other side, something beautiful is born. Mm-hmm. If we stay with it long enough, that it's not just mindless suffering, but that we can make meaning out of pain uh, in a way that actually brings us into fullness. So, so being a therapist was in part something I came to on my own because I realized I love being with people in these experiences of transition and pain that normally make us feel like, I don't think I can do this or like I'm stuck or I'm alone, or this is too much for me to come alongside someone to walk with them through that feels like, oh my gosh, it is everything to me. It like totally lights me up. But, but the other piece of that is I think, um, I had some really bad therapists. Like when I was really, really sick, I had some real trash therapy that just made me feel totally objectified and um, like a, like a number, like a pathology, like a diagnosis. And so a lot of my way of doing therapy, my approach to therapy is feminist in nature, but also really humanistic, uh, really about existential, you could say, uh, helping us understand our experience of being human in a way that normalizes the pain and suffering that comes along with being human and helping us not feel like we're alone in that instead of increasing people's sense of illness or pathology for what's going on for them. So that's, um, I mean, I could talk at length about all of that. One of the beautiful things about being a, a grad student for so long is for years and years and years having to articulate, like, what are my perspectives on therapy? How do I believe change happens paper after paper after paper that would make you, uh, it would cure insomnia. We'll just say that. I've written so many papers, papers on theory of change. Uh, if you ever have a hard time sleeping, let me know. I can send you some of that content. But for me, the intersection of being a person um, who I, I feel okay using the label Christian, although it, it is a word that means something totally different to me now than it did a long time ago, it feels like a, a really beautiful... A way to express my my understanding of what it means to be a person on a faith journey, which is not necessarily to always find answers to things, but to be with other people, to be in connection as we ask hard questions, as we try to make meaning. Um, my goal in therapy, again, is not to give answers and to provide advice for people. That's actually a very ineffective way of doing therapy, but rather to be with people in their not knowing. And to me, that feels like 
that's the journey of faith too. like to be alongside each other in our not knowing as we're like, is it this? Is it this? Oh, what about that? What kind of meaning does that make for me? How does that change my life? I heard an interview with a, a pastor, a minister in New York. Her name's Donna Scopper. She did a really, what to me felt like a really rich interview with Alec Baldwin on his podcast. And she said something to the effect of like, I, I don't know if I'm a Christian. It will take my whole life to figure that out. Like it's mm. this kind of unfolding journey of like, what does it mean to consider the teachings of Jesus and to have those influence my life? Like, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to figure it out and, and I'm committed to being curious about that. And that to me, there's so many parallels with, with therapy. There's so many parallels around what I think it means to be, um, yeah, alongside people who are suffering and in pain. So, I mean, I'm happy to go into any more of that if you like. That's just kind of the broad overview to get us started. But those are some, yeah, some things from my story. Yeah, so it sounds like right now, and maybe f- at least for the recent past, therapy, psychology, faith have all been in this beautiful sort of uh, parallel in your in your mind. Was that always the case, though? I mean, just because so many people have have come from the world of you don't need therapy, you yeah. need Jesus, right? Yeah. Uh, were was your background? Were they ever at odds? Did you have to overcome that? No, or they were always together? always together because my parents were therapists and we went. We were part of a like a church community, and so having therapist parents who were academics and researchers, being a person of intellect and a person of faith was never at odds. Hmm. Like that, cool. that never felt like a tension for me. And I think that that's something um, that's something unique about my story that other people have had to grapple with. I did have some people when I was really really struggling with my eating disorder, I had some people say like, how can you be a Christian and still be struggling as if like my mental illness was a choice for me and I wasn't choosing faith enough. I wasn't choosing devotion to um, Christian spiritual disciplines enough, but yeah, it felt like, and maybe this is unique about my upbringing too, but my parents always did their faith practice and their therapy practice in these really overlapping ways, like faith and psychology were, if we looked at the Venn diagram, more overlapping than not. Um, mm-hmm. And what that meant is that my parents set up their practices. My dad had a private practice in addition to teaching in university. He set up his private practice so that people who couldn't pay could always have therapy. Cause he's like, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be that treatment is just available for people who have resources. Like that's creating a kind of, a, a, it's replicating a system of injustice that Jesus spoke pretty publicly about being against. Like if, if care is only for the wealthy, then we're missing the whole point of the gospel. So for me, I just got this, like, I think really beautiful integration of how care and the being with people was an expression of faith using resources, using intellect, to help people feel less alone in their pain and to help them move into wholeness and to shalom that just overlapped. It like wasn't distinct. So I know that that's not the case for everybody, but I feel really lucky that I never had to pick one of or the other of those things. Yeah, totally. It seems like a lot of your work focuses on the importance of the, the body and how we can, you know, I just, I've seen a lot of recent tweets even about embodiment and, um, and we have a listener question that I want to play that's sort of along those lines. Hi, Nate and Tim. It's Madeline from Columbus. Um, I just recently left a pretty controlling evangelical church that I had been in for my whole life, really. 
Um, and so growing up in that context as a woman and being told that my body is bad and dangerous and my desires are dangerous and also being closeted and gay on top of that, that my desires are extra bad. And so my question is just how after years of that and years of no, like being taught that you are bad and your body is bad, how can I start and where can I start even to sort of unlearn that and um, reconnect with my body and with those desires? I'm curious what you guys have to say before I jump in. Any insights or thoughts? No, no answers to the question only to say that that question and the sentiments underlying it are so common. The stories we hear of people who listen to the podcast and, uh, and so many of people I've known from evangelical, uh, upbringings, um, have dealt with all the same disastrous results of purity culture and body shame and stigmas around sex and marriage that people have not been able to overcome for 15 years of trying. Uh, so all that to say, my only uh, addition is uh, I know there are more people like Madeline out there dealing with similar uh, questions. Yeah, sim- similar. Just the, the first thing that came to my head was that. And then also definitely don't feel pressure to uh, introduce yourself back into one of those type of groups, even if it's not the evangelical type, but maybe a better version of that. And I just know a lot of times, maybe three, four years ago, even when I started to rethink some of this, I still would have pushed someone maybe towards church um, and towards some sort of experience like that. And I think I'm just a lot more comfortable saying like, you you probably just need a break from that and to find some answers in different ways and uh, to find health and, and wholeness in different ways. But I'm curious, I'm curious what you as a bit of a more expert in this field would, would have um, to say, because I do know it's a, a lot of listeners and a lot of people in general yeah. feeling this. One of the the complications of my uh, my licensure and my registration uh, in my regulatory bodies that I'm actually not allowed to provide advice or clinical input for people I'm not seeing. <laughs> so asking listener questions in a platform like this is kind of complicated for me because I can't be, I can't mm-hmm. make it, um, I can't give Madeline advice. So what I'll do is I'll try and speak more globally. It's one of the things that's like kind of unique about my job and yeah. makes me maybe distinct from a Dr. Phil uh, in terms of like how I, I make ethical decisions. But I can speak generally to like this kind of body of people who who have experienced this, this in their faith community where there was a, a really damaging message that the body was bad. And there are subsections of people who get layers and layers and layers and layers added on top of that. Not only is your body bad, but you're queer, so you're extra bad. Or, you know, you're you have um, you have fluidity in your gender identity, so you're extra bad. Or you're a person of color, and this is a white space. So the way you're expressing your emotion, the way you're moving, the way you're being, the things you're asking for, make you extra bad. One of the things that that I think about for people who I've been seeing, for people who I work with clinically, who leave a faith context where they've been told their body is bad, is they think that that leaving the church will give them space from, from those messages. And what they're not often prepared to encounter is that the church is doing a really good job, some churches I should say, not globally, but some churches are doing a really good job of funneling that message of your body is bad to you. But 
they're a, a you know like a like a microphone a, a amplified version of something that our sociocultural context in the west is also saying so we leave the church and we think like oh good i'm away from that but every single piece of media that we see is also saying yeah but if your body doesn't look like this it's bad and we still have homophobia and we still have sexism outside the church community so the problem is like the church is this amplified voice of something that's actually going on on a, a broader cultural level. And what we'd like to be able to do, I think, is say that the church is distinct from culture. But what we don't realize is that the church is actually in the way we interpret scripture and the way we understand theology is very much based on our positionality in our certain context and place and time. So what's going on around us culturally, as much as we wish it wasn't the case, is also happening in the church and vice versa. So if we're going to try and do the work to heal, there often has to be some more intentional work to find spaces outside of not just faith communities, but also the broader sociocultural discourse to to be at home with ourselves. And, And what that means often is finding spaces, therapeutic spaces, spaces of people who have like same intersecting identities to create a sense of common identity, common... Um, need, common perhaps emotion around what's happened. And then first, always before the healing, always before the healing, and sometimes the thing that creates the healing is to name the injustice, to name the wrong that's happened. When we leave a community and we're like, oh good, it's over. No, 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 no. It's the, the work is not over. The work is now actually we're able to do it because we're not continuing to be injured. So for an example of this, if a woman's in an abusive relationship and I'm doing trauma therapy with her and every time I do trauma therapy with her, she goes back home and gets abused again, it's really hard for her to know that her body is safe. The trauma therapy that we're doing can't really actually kind of like sink in and create the repair it needs to. Yes, we have to be out of the context that's dangerous and and problematic, but it's only when we're out can we actually start doing the work to do the repair. And that often starts with naming the things that were not okay, accessing our pain, accessing our anger. Grief is a huge thing for a lot of people who've left a a dangerous and toxic faith community, feeling like, how did I get tricked into this? How did I believe it for so long? How was I misled? How did I actually then become part of a system that was hurting me and other people? There's a lot of reckoning that has to happen there. And only when the wounds have been named and there's been a a place to say the things that we haven't been able to say, can then we then start thinking, okay, what do I do to rebuild again? And for us, um, particularly for women or people, um, queer people, uh, people with different gender identities, people of color, wherever these, these people are, whoever they are, where there's been this extra layer of your body is bad, One of the things that I mentioned earlier was finding spaces of people who affirm the goodness of your body, uh, practices that affirm the goodness of your body. And I know it sounds really, really simple, but I often with people, will just have them put their hands on their body as a way of connecting to themselves and saying, I'm so sorry you went through that. As if to say that to themselves, like to name the hurt that happened. And in doing that, not only are you naming the hurt that happened, but you are connecting with yourself and addressing that your body is carrying some unfinished business. And it's okay for your body to take all the time in the world to heal. Because what we don't think about in in our kind of general cultural knowledge around pain is that trauma is stored in the body. It's not an idea. Trauma or the sense of I'm unsafe, I'm not okay, is actually written into and shaped into 
uh, our neurobiology after we've been in an environment that's traumatic for a certain amount of time. So it takes a lot of time for our body to realize that we're safe and touch, our, our own touch is really helpful. Movement is really helpful. Processing therapies like EMDR, somatic experiencing, um, anything that helps the body go, oh, whoa, I have a place to finally let go of all that stuff that I got stuck inside of me. And now it's okay. Now, now I know I'm safe. And so I can start to tell a new story about myself. Those are like some of my thoughts. Again, there's like so much more I could say specifically about that. Um, if I got to, to talk to Madeline or a person in, in my office, um, but I hope that there's something in there for, for everybody. Sure. Let me, um, cause uh, as you're sharing that I'm, I was feeling a lot in my own body of something that I think Nate and I have felt, uh, pretty, pretty often since we started a podcast about two years ago, which is at one level, we think the podcast has been pretty helpful for some people. And then there's so many other levels where talking about ideas on a digital podcast only goes so far, right? And so many of the people that we've interacted with and got to meet through listening to the show have had to flee uh, toxic relationships or toxic communities or been kicked out of their communities. And so for a lot, the visceral reaction is, I absolutely don't know where to go to find that new affirming community. So maybe w one thing to, to just ask to, to sort of channel and see how you've dealt with this or processed this yourself is like, if someone were to come to you in therapy, like you mentioned, if you're doing trauma therapy with, with a client and they express to you, I don't have a way to go implant myself into a new positive, healthy, affirming community. Does that leave you sort of hopeless or are there enough things that someone can do individually? Like you're saying, even speaking to your own body, are there enough practices and tools that you can give individuals to create that community or to do for themselves what they would hope others would eventually do for them? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think about some systemic issues that that make that transition out from one community into another community extra difficult, such as um, the assumption that we get to be transplanted without having to do the work to build the relationships. Like one of the things that happens in faith communities is that you're typically expected to be able to talk about the hardest, most difficult things in your life with uh, unencumbered vulnerability for the purpose of telling testimony or sharing with people or in small group settings, like just, just talk about it without building the relationship and getting to know each other and, and doing that work first. Like the number of times I've seen people share things, I I don't think that they should be sharing because it's expected in a faith context, I think sets people up when they leave a faith context to not know how to do the work to build slow, meaningful relationships that take time. So we leave and then we actually don't have the skills and we just want to drop ourselves into a community where everybody understands us, which is kind of what church was like. Wow. When you, you just go into a building and you are like, oh, because we're all here, we just believe the same things. And so we're good, right? Like I remember, here we go, this is embarrassing. But I remember being at Christian summer camp and being like, I could date any of these guys because I don't have to worry if they <laughs> love Jesus or not. Like, yep. I can assume we all have the same values. So, like, anybody here could be of interest to me. And that's like, 
that's a, a hilarious example of what we do in faith communities. We're like, oh, we, we just have the same values, so we're good, right? And then we leave church and we don't know how to build friendships. We don't know how to get to know someone. We don't know how to do incremental vulnerability. So there's often that, I think of it as like a second wound. You're lonely because you've left your community, but then you also have to spend the work or spend the time and do the work to build relationships from scratch. And that's really hard. People don't want me to tell them like, hey, next time you're volunteering, ask somebody if they want to hang out after, right? People don't want to do that. They're like, I just, I just want to drop into relationship without having to do the work to get there. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, actually one of the, the problems with faith communities. So there's, uh, there's double wounding. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think building skills around relationship and thinking about doing the hard work, even though it can be exhausting, is being empowering because it means that you're not you're doing something different than you've done before. You're doing something different than than was just what was just handed to you and what you assumed about the world. You're actually like most of people, if they haven't been in a faith community, you're learning to just do adult relationship. Right? And there's uh, there's agency in that as much as there is pain. I think about therapeutic communities too, finding groups of people who want to do work um, on themselves, finding personal growth or spiritual growth communities, volunteering uh, group therapy opportunities where you are meeting people for the purpose of like self-reflection and self-growth retreat opportunities. Um, I think of that stuff as, as being helpful, but I wish there was a panacea and there isn't we. We have to do the work, but you're right. It can start with like being present to ourselves, which I think is this added skill. Like when things get hard relationally and we're lonely, instead of beating ourselves up about that, we know how at least to be compassionate to ourselves and name like, there's a reason this is hard. Life looks a lot different than it did before. And it's not because you are bad, right? Talking to yourself, it's not because you're bad. It's it's because this is new and you haven't done this before. I think there's something so heart-wrenching for those of us that spend a lot of time either in a church or or like working for churches where the idea was this was a, a hospital right it mm-hmm. was the place you could mm-hmm. you could crawl into and be cared for without building the structure and mm-hmm. especially for those who have realized that that place actually is the thing that hurt them mm-hmm. and then there isn't a, an alternative hospital mm-hmm. to just go crawl into that, mm-hmm. that we actually have to start building something from scratch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like too much disillusionment, too much disorientation to swallow. I think mm-hmm. <laughs> for some, yeah. uh, that, that phrase incremental vulnerability feels like, uh, such a spot on phrase and such mm-hmm. a, like, um, it puts a finger on the, how much different this is from the panacea, mm-hmm. right? It is yeah. a, a very different approach. Yeah. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. 
Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Even in trauma therapy, when people come in, I usually don't have them tell me what the traumas were and what happened until at least third session. Mm -hmm. Because even if I'm a therapist and you've decided on some level you can trust me, I want for you to pay attention to your body enough that your body knows that you can trust me. Even if because of, you know, you've signed a confidentiality agreement, you think, oh, this is going to be safe. How do you know you could, how do you know I'm going to keep you safe? even if I'm not sharing your information. So I even tell people in therapy, especially people who have spiritual trauma, don't tell me your trauma. I, it's not safe for you to do that yet. You don't know me. You don't know how I'm going to respond. We have to have like a, maybe a little bit of like a, a little vulnerability or a little bit of a risk. And you get to see how I hold that for you. And then you can decide if it's safe for you to tell me the rest of it. But I never ask people to trust me. Never once uh, in, in a session have I said, trust me, because a person gets to decide if they trust me or not. That's not up to me. But I think when we assume trust is there or we assume safety is there, then we, we miss the cues that our body is giving us. We miss the relational and interpersonal cues that tell us, like, well, this is a person that I could really do this with. So slowing the whole thing down is really contrary to perhaps the model of relationship that we were given where like you, you meet someone, you're like, here's my deepest sin right? Yeah. or whatever the story is. Like, I'm going to tell you like how many times I masturbated yesterday. Like maybe, maybe like, let's get to know each other first. Like, how about you tell me what you do for fun? And, and then we figure out like <laughs> if we get along and if we want to build closeness or not. This is Stacy from Jacksonville, Florida, and my question is for Hillary. I've heard her in other interviews, and one of the topics that she's spoken about is how to maintain healthy relationships with others who are not at the same place in their faith walk. So my question is along those lines. What is a good way to explain our deconstruction journey to close friends and family in a way that will leave some space perhaps for a respectful disagreement, but will not sow discord. I really appreciate in advance the response and thank you very much. You know, I, I think it's so easy for us to leave, leave a, a kind of maybe dogmatic or a, a sense of a certain faith and do deconstruction and have the sense that we know the truth now. And in that way, we're replicating the same style of thinking that we did when we were in evangelicalism or fundamentalism or in a more certain faith. And, and what we end up doing is just taking the, the sense of like the primacy of our opinion with us wherever we go. Like, oh, now I'm right. Oh, now I'm right. Oh, now I'm right. Oh, now I'm right. And we don't ever build, or it's easy to miss building the humility that says, and And if I was wrong before, I could probably be wrong now. And maybe the thing that isn't as important to me now as it was then is 
is having certainty. Maybe what's important to me now is asking questions and building closeness and mutual respect and, and safety in relationships. There's something in in psychology. It, it often happens when we we're, we often talk about it when we're talking about addiction. Uh, so that's where people might have heard this. But first and second order change, and the idea is that sometimes we change we change the thing on the surface, but we don't change the thing underneath. So let's say somebody is like, um, you know, I'm not, I don't have a substance use issue anymore, but I have a compulsive work. I'm I'm working compulsively or I don't, I'm not self-harming anymore, um, but I'm constantly numbing by using my phone. Like the thing on the surface has changed, but the thing underneath hasn't. Like, do I know how to be present? Do I know how to emotionally regulate? Do I know how to be with myself? And so what I notice in in a lot of people who are leaving these faith contexts is they change the thing on the surface, but not the underneath. So we leave the ideas of evangelicalism and fundamental Christianity, but we don't change the way that we think. We don't change the how or the, the process by which we come to understand truth or how we see ourselves in relation to other people. So one of the best things that we can do especially if we have done a deconstruction and other people haven't, is to hold with humility um, that our views have changed and that they may continue to be a reflection of where we're at in our life, but not necessarily objective truth. And that that means we're kind of widening a bit of space on the inside inside for us to hold multiple realities at the same time. It's a really advanced skill. It takes a lot of emotional maturity and existential maturity to be able to do that, but to be able to say, this is where I'm at and that's where you're at and all of it is good um, and all of it is okay and all of it is useful and all of it is part of this unfolding story of us being human. That takes that takes a lot to be able to do that. And I think that one of the things that gets in the way of that for people is is the negative association with the old belief system. So it's really hard for me to hold both of these as valuable at the same time when you are identified with a value system that I've actually intentionally tried to push myself away from. But to me, um, I think that there's growth that happens when we allow ourselves to not be right and we allow ourselves to be in the presence of people we disagree with. Uh, that takes a lot of, as I mentioned earlier, emotional regulation to be able to say we can be here at the same time and see things differently and I can still believe you are good. Um, most of us have also not been taught how to disagree well with people. Uh, in one of my one of my philosophy classes that I took just a couple of years ago in my PhD, uh, one of the professors talked about having challenging and complex conversations about ontology and epistemology by by leaving 20 to 30 seconds in between when someone finishes their answer and when we jump in to speak and how often this is just like kind of a practical tool but when somebody is saying something that we disagree with most of the time when we're listening we're just listening for how they're wrong and we're listening for what we're going to say next and we're listening for how we're going to jump in and we forget to actually hear what a person is saying so two questions from, from my research methodology that I really love, and this is hermeneutic phenomenology, two questions are, what is that like for you to believe that and what does it mean to you? So instead of being caught up in the system of are you right or am I right, really getting into a person's experience to get to know them better. Maybe it's okay if we disagree, but I can get to know something about you that helps me see your in, inner world in a way that actually makes us feel closer. So I like to ask questions, like I said, 
what is that like for you to believe that? Like, how has that been helpful for you? What would tell me about what that means for you and the meaning you've given to that. And usually what ends up happening is we feel close to a person, or at least we understand why they believe what they believe. Sometimes we get the added bonus of that person being like, oh, I don't really know how to answer that question. And they realize that they, they don't know why they believe what they believe. And it kind of opens up an opportunity for us to be like, oh, that's, you know, I've been thinking a lot about why I believe what I believe. And it's probably part of the reason why we don't believe some of the same things anymore. But understanding that we don't get primacy or that our truth doesn't eclipse the value of somebody else's truth just because our beliefs have changed, holding multiple realities at the same time, actually listening instead of just waiting to speak and asking questions that help us explore a person's experience instead of arguing about what's right or not. Um, yeah, I think that those those things are helpful when trying to maintain relationship with people who, who maybe we have different beliefs uh, from and it takes the onus off them changing for us to be okay, which is kind of like borderline codependent. Like if I can only be okay, if you believe what I believe, then we're just doing the same thing we always did in evangelicalism. So being able to say, oh, I've transcended to that to the point where I don't like those things and those don't work for me, but I can be okay even if you believe something different. It, it may even be a mark of healing or a place that we could attend to, to help us along in our healing. Yeah. I really love that. And, and then also in the, at the same time in my head, I'm thinking I'm putting myself in certain situations that I know I've been in, or maybe heard from listeners about where, you know, at what point do you, do you need to take a stand, I guess, to kind of, to kind of push you on that a little bit when it comes to maybe uh, our yeah. queer friends or uh, people of color or just mm -hmm. marginalized groups out there when mm -hmm. maybe what someone is believing uh, is, you know, it, it almost feels um, insensitive to say like, well, you know, you can believe that and I can believe that. almost like that there's good people on both sides kind of thing. But it can feel like mm. there's a there's a point where I need to take a, a little bit of a stand here mm -hmm. for the sake of these people. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not maybe so much about what we believe or don't believe, but mm -hmm. it's about making that stand, I guess, mm -hmm. and being with those people that that um, have been forgotten about or marginalized yeah. in society and then also in the church. Yeah. And so I'm curious how you would speak to that. Yeah. And good distinction too, because like you, you know, having Christmas dinner with someone who believes in a literal hell and us not believing in a literal hell, uh, I think is something that doesn't necessarily help the relationship to take a stand on. That might right. be more of like the ego talking, but I think there's a difference. You're right. When we're talking about a matter of justice and oppression. And I would say that we're probably very in line with the teachings of Jesus to be disruptive when there's injustice going on. Um, the challenge that I have with that is we don't change people's mind by getting angry and we don't change people's mind by being like, I'm taking a stand. In fact, we can, we can ask ourselves like, what is the, what is the outcome I'm hoping for here? And often when people are going to change, it's a long game of conversation and being like, Hey, you know, I disagree. I actually, I, it's really important for me that all people of all bodies get access to all spaces and, and my views on scripture and homosexuality have changed. And so I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what you're thinking and how you came to that conclusion. And, and what do you think about like when this is said in scripture and what do you think about interpreting it this way? So if we're trying to change someone's mind, the only way to really to do that is like long-term relationship and dialogue. 
if we if someone perceives us as threatening their perspective, they're actually less likely to change their minds than ever before. So if we're going to take a stand, we tend to have to do that in a relational way if it's actually going to have any impact. Um, but what that usually looks like when I've heard people do it well is like, hey, I don't actually think it's okay to say that. And I'm really concerned about your the, the kind of the values that you're espousing when you talk about it like that. And it's hurtful for me because there's some people in my community who are, who identifies the people that you're speaking poorly about. And, and it's making me feel like, you know, I wouldn't want to bring them here or I don't feel safe being here because you're using speech that seems to have a lot of hate and anger to it. And, and that, that doesn't make sense to me. So even when we're taking a stand for something, are we taking in a stand that makes us feel good about taking a stand or are we taking a stand in a way that's actually going to help someone see a different way? Um, obviously the complexities of every relationship are different. And this often happens around holidays when things are complex and there's like a lot of pressure and expectation that things are going to go well. So I'm a big fan of the circle back conversation, which is like, Hey, uh, that's not okay to speak like that. I'd love for us to not not use speech like that, like homophobic speech or hate speech at the dinner table. Um, why don't we talk about such and such instead? So shifting the direction, but then coming back like a week later and to say, hey, dad, um, one of the things that you said at dinner was really not okay. And I just want to have a little conversation about maybe what you're thinking about that. And, and if we could use different language when we're around, because I know it's probably different now than it was when you were growing up, but Generally, that's the kind of language that that is really hurtful to people who identify with that. And um, yeah, so the, the circle back conversation instead of in the moment being like, I'm going to be a, a justice hero and speak on behalf of all people of color or all queer people like that's um, usually more about us. And it's the, the sh- like interrupting unhelpful conversation and then having conversations that really get into the why those conversations were happening in the first place that tend to create change long-term. Does that answer your question, Nate? Yeah, totally. That's good. And I, I think I was feeling that too. It's like, you know, what are healthy ways to make a stand then? Um, you know, like if it does feel like it's, it's about me doing this and it's going to kind of shut the conversation down, it's not necessarily going to lead somewhere productive. And I'm vaguely familiar with a lot of those studies too, that are, that show that that's not really where, where change comes from. So no, that was really helpful to hear. Can I maybe get some free therapy while we're on the call? Nope. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the la- this whole chunk of the conversation, I am feeling two things and like the two lanes. Um, and so the first is I'm, I'm a strong one on the Enneagram, highly uh, prone to judgmental black and white thinking. And so in one lane, I'm like, yes, I need to not pick every battle. I need to not need to convince people to think different things. I need to not demand that my brother give up his guns at the Christmas table, like that kind of stuff. And and I'm, it's, it's been a long journey that I've been on if sort of like, okay, how, how do we actually just relate to one another? Like, how is change going to happen? Then, just to give you a a teeny synopsis of some of my story, I worked for a church, was very close with it for many years, and then was fired, lied about, and manipulated by that church. I'm so sorry, Tim. Thank you. 
And one of the things that I've most, uh, it's easy for me to think about the people that did that to me now two years later, two and a half years later, and not feel too emotionally tense about it. But as soon as I think about the people who were friends of mine that still go to that church and know what happened to me and and mm. have decided that they're going to stay anyway, then my whole body mm. wants to seize up in, yeah. <laughs> in yeah. a whole flow of feelings. So one yeah. basically one thing for me feels like finding humility, choosing to listen instead of speak all the time, some some range of those things. And another one feels like survival. And it's mm-hmm. been more of, for my wife and I, like, can we even still talk to these people? Mm-hmm. Is a mm-hmm. is a 10-minute phone conversation going to take more out of us than we have to give? It's more of like, what do we need to do to protect ourselves uh, kind of thinking and framework? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm internalizing this whole conversation about you know, how do we relate to family or friends that are still in different worlds? And I'm imagining that either people are feeling both of those as well, or maybe more of one than mm-hmm. the other. Are those this, are those two sides of the same coin? Am I, mm-hmm. are those entirely different? Uh, you know, what I'm calling us, it feels like a survival effort on one hand mm-hmm. and feels like a, maybe toning my language down on the other hand are those actually mm. part of the same processes uh, of doing relationship with people or would you mm. say if it is that emotional survival thing that it's a different calculation are we going about thinking about relationships and maintaining friendships in a different way if we're feeling like it's been so traumatic that to stay will actually mm-hmm. hurt yeah I Again, I feel the the complexity of this question and how different it is for everybody. Like, I don't know what those relationships are like with those people and what you believed about those friends before this all happened and what you believe about them now and what they said and what they didn't say. And I think there's so much individual variability in these situations. But I, I so I, I guess I feel um, I feel not sure how to answer that uh, without it being either specifically about you or without making generalities that wouldn't apply to everybody. Sure. I guess I, my struggle whenever we're talking about relationships and trauma in uh, communities that feels felt safe and now feel unsafe is that I think we want to catch all answer. I think we want a, like, if I do these things, I'll be okay. And my both, either my friendships will be resolved or they'll change or I'll be okay without them. And, and life doesn't really work like that. And I don't think healing works like that either. And I wish that there was a way I could say, well, if you do 50% of this and 50% of that, or if it's like mostly about survival and just like 10% of like, oh, but I'm listening to you too, uh, that will be okay. And, and what that doesn't account for is what they're going to say and what they're going to do and what happens for you when you are communicating. Um, It's, it's just so painful when relationships change and we feel hurt by people that we trusted and we don't really know what to do with that. Um, Because I think we, we think that things will be um, clean, like people will side with us or we won't be friends anymore. And the reality is that most of the time those relationships are messy. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling caught in how to answer your question without um, answering it specifically. Yeah, well, and I think may, mm-hmm. maybe part of what I'm what I'm expressing or asking or, 
It's just, isn't it always that complicated, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like just in this short conversation, I can feel, you know, five mm-hmm. very strong emotions yeah. pulling me yeah. in five different directions, right? And so if we're talking about how do we relate to people who are f- are the people from our mm-hmm. past world, like won't that be just as, as complex yeah. and strained and, <laughs> and difficult yeah. a thing to figure out where... Like for me, I'm saying it's even without trying to calculate it, it has just yes. been a different question for yeah, various different absolutely. people in my life. Absolutely. I think um, it's so hard. It's so hard to grieve friendships. It's so hard to grieve when relationships change. I mean, I think about the number of times in my adult life when, when there's been something that's happened and a friendship ends, relationships that were deep and mutually beneficial and edifying and complex but also part of real life and when they change how painful it is and how much we want to do one of the other like run away or just um placate to try and keep the relationship going and and it's so hard to walk that space in the middle if we don't know what to do um yeah do we stay in friendships or relationships that are still hurting us or hurting other people do we leave how do we leave in such a way that that blesses the other person and which is well for them and perhaps invites them into seeing things differently or letting them know the impact of their actions on us without them feeling shamed. Hmm. Gosh, it's so, it's so hard to know what to do when things are messy in friendships and relationships. And especially when I think we've been sold a story in church that like, this is family and we do life together. Um, because it makes us feel like we really have to grieve the death of, of a family. Yeah, so I'm feeling the complexity of this and noting your five emotions that are pulling you in five directions and how, <laughs> uh, just how real that is. Hmm. It's so real. I'm so sorry. Thanks. This is probably too broad of a question. Mm. Uh, in your experience, um, mm. does long-term participation in conservative forms of of american christianity uh does it does that help or make it harder for people to be mentally physically spiritually healthy i think it probably depends on a person's uh developmental life stage i think it depends probably on the context in which they're living and the other socioeconomic and cultural factors that are going on around them. Like it's a very privileged white question for us to to talk about the values of deconstruction when we could leave a faith community and still survive. Um, what I've learned from friends of mine in communities of color, questioning, questioning the church is questioning your ability to survive. Um, and this isn't the case for everybody, but it means um, when, when your ability to have community resources, a place to move and dance and sing when you're constantly facing oppression, uh, your ability to be part of something where you are valued and where you are reminded of who you are in, in the eyes of your creator when, when stepping outside the building that you're meeting in makes you feel like you are in danger for your life. I think, um, I think that complicates the question. So I would say it really depends on what your intersecting identities are. And for some people, 
having a conservative faith community has legitimately allowed them to survive horrible things, right? Because it's been safe, it's been secure, it's been predictable. Uh, even if someone in a different position of life with a different identity could hear the same things and and feel totally wounded by them. So I don't. I think we have to not just necessarily look at the at the institution, but who's in it and who benefits from it and what's going on in their life. Um, that being said, I think it's developmentally appropriate for us to challenge things that felt true a long time ago, that um, felt certain, um, for us to make room for an expanding and unfolding and widening view of the world instead of like people are good or bad. Oh, maybe a good person did a bad thing because they were trying to help another good person, right? Instead of the letter of the law situation, like speeding is bad, the spirit of the law. Well, like, were you speeding because you took your friend who was having a heart attack to the hospital faster? Okay, it's okay to speed. And so we often see that in moral development, and this comes from the research and the work of uh, Kohlberg and then later Carol Gilligan, but like we have these complex ways of making meaning and making decisions about what's right and what's wrong. And those tend to change based on where we're at in a certain stage in life, but also change based on what's been rewarded for us and what we need in order to survive. So again, yeah, maybe the question's broad and I wish it was as simple as saying like conservative beliefs are harmful for people, but uh, I've learned from people in communities of color that that's actually a, a white, a white response. Um, hmm. Yeah. So as we as we close, I've asked this question of other guests at different times too, and I'm just curious. Um, as you look at at uh, let's just choose let's just choose America and Canada. I know that you're not in America, yeah. but in the yeah. the the West over here, um, yeah. as you look at the 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 state of things, what is one thing that gives you a bit of despair, and what is one thing that gives you um, a, a bit of hope? as you look out um, at, at what you see? Yeah, despair, I would say, um, would probably be something about our inability to make changes in our behavior around protecting the environment. Hmm. Um, that feels really sad for me that the more and more insight we have about what's going on with our planet, um, that our responses and our changes have often been based on what feels comfortable for us and not necessarily what is an appropriate response and action in terms of us being able to take care of our planet and our resources. I think what's giving me hope is um, is not necessarily related to that, but I, I love that in the last 15 to 20 years in the field of psychology, which previously was dominated by research around pathology, like what makes us mentally ill, what is suffering, what creates pain, that the movement in psychology has been towards what we call positive psychology or growth or well-being studies. So we're learning more and more and more about what it means to be healthy as people, uh, what it means to be, like what's happening in the brain of a person who's really healthy, what's happening in communities that are really healthy. And the neuroscience is super compelling. And I think it, um, it gives me as a therapist so many better tools to not just decrease symptoms, but also increase people's experiences of meaning in their life. So um, the neuroscience of positive psychology is the thing that gives me hope. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Great question. Thanks, Hillary. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, you're so welcome. Such a pleasure to chat with you guys. Thank you for the invitation and uh, wishing you you well. Thank you. For listeners who would like to find you and stalk you all over the internet, where would you like to point them? <laughs> uh, com is my website. On Twitter, I think I'm Hillary L. McBride. And then on Instagram, Hillary Leanna, L-I-A-N-N-A McBride. Um, I got a couple books out. One's a textbook, so that tends to not get as many <laughs> as many Amazon clicks because people generally don't want to read a textbook for fun. Um, but if you're a clinician, check that out. And then I have a book called Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, which is about telling a new story about our bodies as women. And a book coming out, I guess it'll be about a year, a year and a month or so, uh, called Embodied, all about embodiment, the politics of the body, um, and, and being in connection with our body, especially when we've been told our bodies are bad. So keep your eyes out for that. Awesome. Can't wait for that. All right, friends, thanks for spending some time with us today. And a special thanks to all of our patrons who support this show. By supporting the show, you get access to a second podcast that we do called Utterly Heretical. It's where we share personal stories and some extra thoughts about interviews that we do, like this one. When this interview was over with Hillary, we kept our mics going and recorded some extra thoughts, some stuff we didn't get into, and uh, just some things that we were thinking about that this triggered in us. And, and we'd love for you to listen to that. You can do that at patreon.com slash almost heretical. All right, we'll catch you next time.